0: Empire It started as a way to treat head trauma and now We believe that we
1: can identify this, the quality of this and whether or not there is some kind of potential need for remediation strategy in kids before it becomes a learning disability and so we think that there's some real promise to being able to use this as a a dynamic screening tool. That's Scott Anderson,
0: Chief Clinical Officer at SyncThink, who is having his eyes open to the potential of seeing what we see. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Meantime, the speed with which concussions can be diagnosed and initially treated is part of Scott Anderson's mission, but as you'll hear, they believe their technology could be life-altering for athletes and non-athletes alike. We'll get to him in a few, plus being in the clear while trying to get into a Cleveland Indians game, how an airport screening technology is finding its way to those long gate entrances at ballparks around the major leagues. But first, the future is now. Sports teams know a lot about you. They know what kind of fan you are. They know who you like, but how much do they really know about you? Big Tech is here, and sports teams are trying to find out more about your likes and dislikes. Matt Foley from Ozzy followed the tech industry as sports teams are into the business of tracking you now. How are you, Matt?
2: I'm doing great, Bram. Thanks
0: for having me. Uh, Tell us about your piece. What did you find out?
2: Yeah, so um, in researching and reporting the piece, uh, I talked to some big data analytics firms that are working with various teams and venues, and basically every every major league sports team around the world is working with one of these firms. Um, and I think there's two key components here. There's the security aspect from keeping fans safe and making venues safer and also protecting the information that these firms are gathering on us as we Leave a trail with every purchase we make in stadium and online, and then the sexier component is kind of what the teams like to talk about is uh, building customized offerings and experiences to make going to a game or a concert a more uh, a more enjoyable and individual experience. Um, and that's we can see that in little changes that are that are happening at the stadiums and from kind of more. Uh, more kind of experiential aspects of stadiums popping up to poolside bars and uh, clubs and things like that to individual marketing and uh, teams kind of customized emails letting you know things that they think you'll like that are in the stadiums like a a certain wing, uh, Vietnamese wing venue that's uh, offering that they know you like because you follow on Instagram, things like that.
0: You know, what's interesting about it is, so Target and all the major big box stores do this too, but they're really good at following exactly what you buy, but there are 8 million things in their store that you could choose from, and they can start to narrow down likes and dislikes. When you walk into a stadium, there aren't that many options. There are specific food options, there's team merchandise, and and not much more than that. So I, I wonder if they understand that they need to alter the offerings in the venues.
2: Yeah, they definitely do. That's one thing that came up uh, in my reporting is these venues are trying to be more diverse. They're trying to bring in more um, more offerings for fans, in whether that's food and beverage or um, give you more options in tickets that you can move seats and, and you can change. Uh, You can have a standing room section and a seat closer to the field that might give you a better look during a game. That was a cool thing I thought, but yeah, it's it's tough. It's not like going to a big box store where you have so many, uh, you have thousands of of options. There's they know they have to expand, but that's kind of a a balance that they're trying to strike.
0: So, are they going to become airports? Airports a long time just used to fly planes. Now they're malls.
2: It kind of seems that way, doesn't it? It, uh, yeah, it's the going to the game is is the key that i think most sports fans still love but these teams know that they to retain to retain customers and turn them into repeat uh repeat business they need to create more of an experience give you more entertainment options and more food and beverage options
0: um from your reporting what did you find out or what did teams tell you that was a little bit surprising about their fan bases
2: um well one thing i thought was surprising and i guess it makes sense is that uh single ticket holders so people that just buy one ticket to go to a random game uh not season ticket holders they are less than 20 percent repeat um so most of their most of the good business these teams are bringing in are from their season ticket holders which makes sense but they're really scrambling to try to to try to bring back the people that only buy one ticket at a time and um so i was pretty surprised by that i've myself I don't know I'll go five games in a season so I'm a repeat guy but um, yeah so they're doing everything they can to uh, customize the messaging that they're sending to individuals whether that's on email or eventually tech, being able to text their fans uh, I, I thought that was surprising they, they very much anticipate a few years down the road uh, direct messaging on your, on your cell phone to your fans
0: and so do they believe that that's because the venue doesn't offer what the single-ticket fan wants, or do they believe that this is just a cost analysis of what it costs to go to a game?
2: Yeah, I think it's a more of a cost analysis, so that's why they're so dead set on trying to make it a, a more substantial experience than just a ball game uh, to give you something more to make that ticket worth your while and keep coming back.
0: The name of the piece is It's Not Just Big Tech. Sports teams are tracking you to by Matt Foley on the site Aussie. Thank you, Matt.
2: Thanks, Bram. Have a good one.
0: Up next, Scott Anderson, Chief Clinical Officer from SyncThink. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is Scott Anderson, who is the Chief Clinical Officer at SyncThink, where they have revolutionized the speed by which a diagnosis can be achieved through eye tracking. Hey, Scott, how are you? How are you, sir? Great to be on with you. So, for our listeners, what is it that your equipment does?
1: Yeah, so, Bram, uh, as you know,
0: we're working in
1: the field of brain health, and um, we use a modified virtual uh, reality-based system that is equipped with eye tracking cameras that can detect um, subtle movements in your eyes um, and uh, use that as an analysis for how your brain is functioning. And so, uh, over extensive years of research, uh, over uh, a decade of research, we've been able to categorize various eye movements um, and correspond them to certain conditions, uh, health-related, brain health-related conditions, and also give us an overall picture of um, what things may be impacting, um, you know, your brain's effectiveness or your brain's uh ability to function effectively
0: so you you said you've been doing this for about a decade all this data has come in um you're getting more and more and more each time you you use this how has uh this data changed in the way that you treat patients from when you started doing it to what you know now
1: sure yeah i think um you know when we first started doing it we were um really um, put up to the task by the U.S. Department of Defense and were initially funded by them to really develop uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury solutions, for soldiers. And I think today how it's evolved is really, um, I would say, as it is just important to identify and support um, a clinician's opportunity to diagnose a brain health condition appropriately, we also are seeing that by proactively monitoring your own brain health, and training it, you can actually um, improve the quality of your brain's performance and and perhaps decrease some of the risk exposure that there may be to some of
0: these long-term health conditions. How would one do that? Could you be specific?
1: Sure, yeah. So I would say that if you, um, really what we're measuring is how well somebody pays attention to the world around them or how well can they um, synchronize. The things that they do with their, you know, verbally or um, motorically with their body, um, how well can they synchronize that with the things that are happening around them? And we see this all the time in sports, right? You see a pitch thrown; the batter has to start their swing before the ball gets to them. It's a, it's a a system that the brain uses to guide us through our external environment. And so, um, what we see in conditions, in many medical conditions, is that this system is thrown off. And what we're seeing now is that if we can expose people to their regular environment, and in our case, we can do this in virtual reality, we can provide certain stimuli that they have to pay attention to, we can objectively measure the quality of their attentiveness and then train it up inside the head mount and say, look, this is the area where you pay attention poorly. Um, this For this particular task or skill, um, you're not as good as you should be for your age, your population, or um, your sport, for, for example. And we can actually uh, intervene to get them to where they should be based on the data that we have captured um, over this period
0: of time. So this is beyond, though, just telling someone, hey, focus.
1: Exactly. This is how well is the brain using the eyes to allow you to interpret and interact with the things that are around you. We are constantly using our eyes to select content in our visual field that we want to interact with and that we want to do something with. And uh, being able to do this in a precise way allows us to be effective in our job and to also be safe. So if you're a pilot and you're flying a plane and you're not very good at this, you shouldn't be flying a plane. And if you're, um, you know, playing a sport and your job is to hit the baseball, you're not going to be very good at this if, you don't, uh, if this isn't optimized. And so being able to selectively you know, identify um, how we pay attention and how this can be optimized for people's professional goals is uh, really what we're after.
0: I mean, that's really interesting because I went into this going, okay, we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury and, and treating it and what happens with knowing this knowledge immediately and how that helps clinicians to you guys might be the ultimate scouting service for people who are as locked in as possible.
1: And that's really what the teams are interested in. They want to know, can I determine by um, you know, uh, screening somebody prior to the draft, can I tell whether or not they can pay attention well or that they can retain information um, that we provide them? What, do they have the capacity to learn or improve on the capacity to learn if we draft this person? That's really where I think on the sports end of things, this is, that, that's where this is going.
0: Did you know that going in, or has this just been kind of an unintentional reaction to the technology um, I think that uh,
1: we had some uh, inkling that this is something you know having worked in the sports industry for 20 years myself um, you know I know that sports teams are really interested in identifying how do they get this one percent edge right whether that's in their physical preparation the mindfulness uh, you know mental preparation what are the tools and and uh, technologies and strategies that we can utilize that's unique to our organization that will um, help us develop players and get us the biggest return on our, our investment to making us successful. And so um, I, I did kind of suspect that this is something that um, certain sports and certain teams would have an interest in. Um, I think the response has been tremendous in the sense that um, there's really people who are like you having a reaction like, wow, this is a whole other frontier of information that we can gather and we can really see for ourselves, you know, the you know, what, who are the players that we should invest in and who should we um, stay away from? Of course, they're not making this, uh, decision in a vacuum. They're using this along a whole, uh, a, a, a whole spectrum of, um, data that's coming into their system for how they evaluate prospects. But you know, this is another step that's telling us, um, you know, the cap- the true capabilities are, p- are, potential for high performance for athletes.
0: Uh, and we're taping this tonight Is the beginning of the NFL draft. Um, are teams using this to determine at least one criteria of prospects? Has it has it gotten that far yet? Yeah, it
1: has. Um, there are teams, uh, you know, a- a- across the landscape of sport that um, really are uh, keenly aware of. Um, you know, how, what type of role this potentially can play in their evaluation process. And also, um, you know it's not going I don't believe that eye tracking is at the, at the place where it's going to fundamentally make the decision for them, but it's certainly being used to help them better um, evaluate everything that uh, you know a potential prospect brings to the table.
0: Okay, so take me down the road into the future to where you think, it goes and what the real capability may be five, ten years down the road?
1: Sure. I think there's two things that I would point out that I think are really compelling around sport, particularly. One is that this really becomes um, the new frontier for performance um, training. And um, I, I believe, and, and we as a company are really bullish on. Uh, augmented reality, mixed reality tools, being able to simulate the environment that you would play your sport in, in order to get the maximum training benefit um, for your brain. So, being able to optimize your attention and your readiness to perform, um, we can do this by laying out your, um, in a 3D image. We can lay out the per- the performance environment in your house. You know, so you could be in your backyard, but you could be taking pitches from, you know, a major league pitcher. Um, so being able to use this, use um, our eyes as really the, the, the mechanism by which we um, optimize performance and readiness for the brain to go repeat what it should do normally, professionally on the field, um, we, can, we will be able to in two years' time be able to deliver this to, um, you know, to athletes everywhere. And, and that's what's really exciting about the, the, the frontier of mixed reality in general is that there's just so much opportunity to really take it to the next level in terms of how we train, how we prepare, and how we um, screen athletes.
0: Um, Teams get this data. The athletes themselves, I'm sure, can have access to this data about themselves. Um, Is there a disconnect of communicating what they're learning about themselves? Does it need to be translated in any way to the teams and the athletes in how to evaluate what they've learned about themselves?
1: Yeah, that's what we're doing today. Um, And so it does require some translation because, you know, it's like, teaching somebody a new language. You know, it's, it's novel, the metrics and the analysis that we're utilizing um, are likely not as familiar to people who you know, don't have a background in um, eye tracking or you know, um, neuroscience, and so um, getting them to learn this vernacular is important, but ultimately, I think in, in due time, um, it will just be like learning um, a lot of the physiological parameters that we utilize for affecting you know, recovery rates using uh, you know, heart rate variability or using GPS. Uh, like where uh, most teams are using today to understand acute to chronic workload ratios, and like those are all things that are commonplace that weren't five years ago. And I truly believe, um, you know, the, this is the frontier, the new frontier of performance, and really technology is on a path to meet us there um, in, in in a couple of years' time.
0: I'll go back to sports in a moment, but I'm, I'm the more I listen to this, the more I just think about real world applications outside of athletics. Um, and here we are in. There's a lot of students around the country that are getting set for finals. Could this technology at some point be utilized to help kids focus?
1: Absolutely. And uh, you're kind of uh, letting the cat out of the bag on that. But um, we're we're keenly interested in that. We believe um, that there's um, that developing. Um, binocular coordinated eye movements is something that occurs, you know, in a uh, young age. And we believe that we can identify the, the quality of this and whether or not there is some kind of potential need for remediation strategy in kids before it becomes a learning disability. And so we think that there's some real promise to being able to use this as a, a dynamic screening tool. You know, many, many people are used to getting a vision uh, test done when they're in school at a young age and they stare at letters on a wall. But the problem is is that those letters aren't moving, and everything that happens in our visual world is moving. And so we can't – there is no test really that's utilized today in the school system to help us identify whether someone has a dynamic vision issue and has problems synchronizing their, their, their reactions to uh, things that are moving. And so we believe that there's a real um, appetite for this in being able to catch this early and to intervene early and to really um, – um, negate the potential after effects of reaction to, reacting to kids potentially with um, hyperactivity disorders um, or kids that are having
0: trouble academically. It's, it's really um, fascinating to, to kind of explore that. Well, I, I mean, just, just the thought of there is potentially a non-medicinal treatment for ADHD sounds o- almost life-altering for kids absolutely yeah, it's, yeah and we
1: and, and, I'll, and i'll mention um we we know and we're um we've published on this too as well we're, we're aware of the specific eye movement signatures that are picked up in adhd patients and so we know that there is a way to kind of objectively screen these individuals and identify whether or not they are candidates for uh, you know, vision therapy or medication or some type of uh, cognitive behavioral training that, uh, or, or in many cases it's not. In many cases we see many kids who have been overly diagnosed and overly medicated unnecessarily, and what they really have is a dynamic vision issue, a teaming issue between the two eyes, and what they need is uh, treatment or rehabilitation. And so, um, you know, we've, we've really been um, intrigued by this uh,
0: this use case in particular Uh, listen we're we're straying way off the path i I thought we'd go but just the last thing on this if you are heading down a path like that and, and now we're talking about um you know pharmaceutical companies that that you know put out pills for this type of situation are you getting pushback about this, these ideas that you are putting out there? That there are ways to potentially treat this that don't involve medication?
1: Not at all. And, and actually, to the contrary, we've worked with uh, pharmaceutical companies in who have specifically worked in drug development for ADHD medications. And, and what they really want to know is, you know, efficacy for dosing. Right? They don't want. They want to know: Can we improve someone's attention um, with the minimal dose possible, rather than just making it a blanket? um, you know, a a blanket recommendation to everybody and then continuing to, to, uh, double that dose if the, the facts aren't, aren't, um, you know, aren't realized. And so I think, um, what we've seen is the opposite. They they are really wanting to know how much does an individual patient need before we see the the actual benefit to their attention and can we keep it as little as possible so that they can
0: actually perform what they need to perform. Um, This is all fascinating. I I need to get us back on track, though, for our listeners that that really like sports. There's one thing I I think that. Uh,
1: you and the listeners would also be willing to to listen to, which I think is another area of this frontier that I think is really compelling. And it's in the area of fan engagement, as you know. In many cases now, teams are or uh, leagues. in in fact, are offering opportunities to watch games in virtual reality or mixed reality where you can actually sit courtside from your living room and watch these games. And one of the things that eye tracking is really going to do for the consumer in the future, it's it's going to be like, um, you know, essentially, um, you know, something that people will be able to have at their home and to be able to use as a consumer product, but, but what is really going to be fascinating about the fan experience is using eye tracking for advertising. And so, um, imagine you're sitting courtside, you're watching a game, you're at your home, you've got your head, your your goggles set on, and by looking at where your eye is landing during, you know, breaks in the action where they're provi- where where they're providing ads to you, they can tell what you like based on how much time your gaze is fixed on the images that they're providing, and then they can filter the types of things that you want to see based on how much time you're resting your gaze on those images. And so if you like, uh, cars and alcohol, you might see a lot of those types of com- commercials during these games, um, based on, um, it's understanding the system's understanding of what you like and what you don't like. And so I think that's another area that, you know, this pay per gaze idea and right now, you know, Google ads and um, a lot of things like that are using per click models, but w- what people will understand in the future is the, the value of their gaze representing their uh, their intention to pay attention to something that they like, and um, I think that's really um, something that's on the forefront of happening
0: here shortly. You know, the, the other part of this, too, for sports teams, and they've run into this, is they're trying to keep people coming to the games. The technology is so strong that sitting on your couch or using your phone, or all there's all these methods, and there's all this reasoning why attendances are going down, but it is possible that they just need to bring the action closer to everybody, right? I mean, that's kind of a sense that I'm getting from you that your brain needs the activity and the activity needs to actually be visually close to you. Does that make any sense? That's correct. And and, and truly immersive is what I would say. You you really want to feel
1: as if you are part of the action, right? And that's where I think being able to um, provide entertainment or provide things to interact with in this type of environment is really truly going to open up the fan experience, and um, you know, make it I would say um, more valuable to the consumer to spend their time, you know, uh, watching these events because. They, as we know now, they want to be doing things in the breaks in the action and they want to be, um, you know, kind of multitasking while they're watching the game. And, um, you know, I think uh, teams and organizations are learning how to continue to find novel ways to entertain people while they're doing that by by making it truly immersive and capturing their attention.
0: Um, Obviously, the other part of this is you can deal with injuries in real time, um, brain injuries. Uh, by utilizing the equipment. Can you kind of give just a general overview of of what you all do to try to expedite a diagnosis when an injury does occur?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, this is really the the foundation of how we were developed in our partnership with the Department of Defense, where um, they insisted on having something that was a mobile platform, which got us interested in virtual reality in the first place, um, because they wanted something that could be at the time and, and place where a soldier went down or was exposed to some type of blast and they could justify objectively removing him and taking him away from his job. And I think that has real, um, uh, there's a real synergy there between what the military use case is and how um, teams may use this now. And so what we do is we provide a uh, stimulus on a screen and there's various types of different interactions that we provide, but they all target different areas of the brain or the brain's visual system. And um, these, we use these series of 60 second assessments. And in 60 seconds, we can tell kind of where there's a clear disruption based on looking at your eye, your eye movement. And um, this is, uh, in many cases, used as the justification for removing somebody from play, but also um, to be able to objectively um, measure their improvement over time. And so then being able to make a decision about when it's safe for them to go back, because even you and I know that if you can't pay attention, how can you protect yourself when you're playing uh, football or you're playing some type of sport? You know, you have to be able to, part of... Uh, optimizing your performance is being able to protect yourself while you're out there so that you don't get hurt and that's one of the things we've seen is um, being able to monitor the the improvement over time we can be assured and and prove to the patient look the risk of you getting re-injured has is, is been decreased as a result of the the monitoring that we've done and now we believe that you are in a position where it's safe for you to protect yourself going back.
0: in, in terms of, of treatment too when, when an injury does occur immediately and obviously you know having them not get back on the field quickly is one part of it, but also literally treating them in real time. If someone you know, right. breaks a bone or whatever it may be, clearly speed is a necessity to attend to them to try to you know repair the damage as fast as possible. Does speed matter? And, and if so, why does it matter to begin a treatment of a brain injury?
1: Yeah, this is a really great question. I think um, what it comes down to is many things can happen um, you know, a patient can present themselves with many subjective complaints when they have a, brain, a suspected brain injury. Um, the issue is, there are many systems that can be affected um, with this type of injury. And if you aren't rapidly assessing and objectively assessing what systems are not working properly uh, or impaired and which ones are working properly, you don't know how to deliver the appropriate treatment to fix it. And that's been our, our problem with concussion in the, few, in the past. It's been that uh, we're relying on the patient's subjective report to convince us of the diagnosis rather than objectively measuring something. You know, when someone has an ankle problem and their ankle is really swollen, they go for an MRI, and the doctor interprets that MRI and says, oh, here's where your injury is, this is the prognosis for that injury what we have in concussion we don't have anything like that a ct scan is not going to effectively um tell us the prognosis of the brain condition and so what we need is objective tools like i think to be able to rapidly quantify the, the the type of impairment and the severity of impairment in the area of the brain so that we can target a specific treatment strategy for that individual patient and that's how we know that they they not only will recover faster and that they will um, buy into the process of remediating this problem, but also that they won't develop some type of secondary comorbidity. And what we've seen with many, many cases is that um, you can develop migraines, you can develop depression, anxiety. Um, There's some suicidal risk in some of these patients if they're left in their room and told to wait it out until um, their symptoms resolve. That, that strategy is no longer effective. And we really need to have objective information to help guide the decision-making so that we can prevent these other problems from uh, really uh, uh, winding up the, the problem and making it more complex to, to r- unravel.
0: This is a remarkable array of topics that you all are dealing with <laughs> at your company. It really is amazing. Scott Anderson is the chief. It, fascinating. Cl- it is. Scott Anderson, the chief clinical officer at SyncThink. I'd like to revisit with you next year if we can and see where you guys are. Thank you for joining us.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure, Brown. Thank you so much.
0: Sick of getting to the ballpark and missing an inning or two just getting by their security? The Indians are trying to do something about that. Next. Not that long ago, I took my son to his first baseball game, and just about everything I had hoped occurred. He loved the sight of the field. He couldn't get enough of seeing a home run hit live. The ballparks are modern enough to know that they better have other activities to keep his generation engaged. But there was one thing to complain about it took longer to get through national security than Dulles Airport. Forget take me out to the ball game, get me in the ball game. Kevin Kleps joins us now from Crane's Cleveland Business, where the Indians are trying to tackle that problem. Hey, Kevin, how are you?
3: Hey, how's it going?
0: I've seen the clear lanes in airports, but the Indians have them now, too. So how do they work?
3: What you do is if you're a clear member, you can just go to uh, the clear. There's an exclusive clear entrance over by the right field uh, gate. So you can go through there. You still, have to go, you still have to get scanned as you normally would going into a a ballpark but you it's a lane exclusively for clear members so the the lines are not nearly as long so you can go right through within minutes as opposed to like you mentioned with your son waiting outside for 15, 20 minutes at a huge gate. And you could they also have these uh pods where you can sign up at the ballpark to become a member. The sports membership for Clear is different than it is for the airports where you have to pay a monthly fee. With sports it's free. So you it, one if you're a member and you try to get in a ballpark, you don't have to worry about paying a monthly rate, which is also kind of cool.
0: So what has been the result so far in terms of moving people inside that you've noticed or what the team is relaying to you?
3: From what I've heard, it's gone very smoothly. I don't think there's a ton of people doing it just yet because it's new. They just started it uh, w- within the last 10 days, and they've only had a few home games since then. And this time of year is when the Indians kind of struggle to draw. Just cause Northeast Ohio, our weather in the spring has just been brutal. So they haven't had. They're only getting twelve, fifteen thousand people a night. So I don't know if the lines, the long lines aren't really an issue for them right now. Regardless of it's of it's clear or regular or the regular entrance to the gate. So it's kind of hard to judge where it's going to really come into play is in July when they, when the weather is really nice and the and the weekend crowds are in the twenty five, thirty thousand range. Then you have the All Star Game coming to Cleveland uh, in July also. So that's when they, that, that that was a big thing for MLB and the Indians to get that done before before the all-star game comes to town
0: and I imagine the teams want this problem solved the longer the people are in the building the more commerce they can actually do
3: yeah I mean it makes so much sense from so many different perspectives after after this thing with the Indian and you know, I reach out to the browns to see you know I mean there's going to be a ton of interest in the browns this year there already is now and uh the state I mean NFL teams always draw better uh, baseball obviously bigger venues and big, more interest in all that stuff but with the Browns, they only would have forty, fifty thousand 50,000 people at a game the last couple of years when they were bad. And now this year, you said it's going to be an absolutely packed house every game. So I reached out to them to see if this was an option. They said not yet, but it's something that they would look into. It, just, it would seem to make more, so much sense for this to become more of a norm, not just in baseball. Baseball's done a good job of uh, implementing it, but it's really not. Being used much anywhere else in sports, when it just makes too much sense to have this not happen.
0: Uh, back to clear, just for a moment. It's free for the sports fan that enters the stadium. How did that work out? That they were willing to do that for free.
3: I think it's because they they're getting more people in their database. Where if you're in, an Indians fan, if they get ten thousand, twenty thousand Indians fans to sign up, then they might be more likely to use the airport service. And the airport services, I think it's about one hundred seventy nine bucks a year. So if you get I don't know, a 1,000 of them to convert to the airport service, then they're adding business that way. And when you're in the ballpark and, you, and when you're in that entrance, you see the branding, you see the signs and all that. Oh. And so and they're, ultimately, they're not going to say that this is why they're doing it, but it makes sense for them because and there's a chance that there's going to, they, they can end up getting hundreds or thousands of fans at each of these ballparks signing up for the airport service because they like how efficient the ballpark service is.
0: Kevin Kleps from Crane's Cleveland Business. Thank you, Kevin. No problem, Bram. That'll do it for us this week. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.